Most of you know that I have had the privilege of sitting under some of the, or several of the best pastors in recent church history in America, at least those who understand and know the truth. And one of the godly pastors whose ministry I was privileged to sit under used to say, and I believe correctly, that if you ask a dozen people the question, what is the gospel, you will likely get a dozen different answers. What is the gospel? Well, you ask that to someone, and they would likely say something to the effect that, well, the gospel is the story of Jesus Christ, that He came and dwelt among men upon earth, and He lived a spotless life, and that then He gave His life upon the cross to save men from their sins. Amen? That's a good answer. But that's not all. And someone else might say something like, well, the word gospel means good news. So, the gospel is the joyous proclamation of God's redemptive activity of Jesus Christ on behalf of men. Amen? Good answer. But, yet another might say something like, Well, the Gospels are the first four books in the New Testament that disclose the life of Jesus, all that He did, and the example that He set. Okay, Uh, I like that. But then perhaps an astute and studied Christian might say and quote the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 15 and say, Now I make known to you, brethren, the Gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which you are saved. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Amen. I find no fault in this. However, what you have to remember is that that comes towards the end of a lengthy book that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And he had already covered a lot of other ground in his dealing with them and in his letter that he sent to them. And so, all of these being good and nothing wrong, all being true, that the point, however that my pastor wanted to make was this. And again, I tend to agree with him, that most people, when they give a definition of the gospel, tend to begin in the wrong place. Most people tend to begin with Christ and the work that Christ did upon the cross. And that is indeed good news, which is what the word gospel means. However, why is it good news? What makes that good news? And that's why he suggests that it is better 
to begin with the reason that Jesus came and why He had to give His life upon the cross. And as you recall, He gave His life upon the cross to pay for what? Sin. And so He suggests the better part of wisdom is to begin with the fall of man and your sin that must be forgiven and the helpless plight of man who can in no way pay his own sin debt. By multitudes of good works, he will still come far short. He can never make up the difference. He can never pay for his own sin because he's constantly still sinning. So, there needs to be redemption through another. But you begin by telling men of their desperate plight as they stand guilty of judgment before God and one day they will stand before Him. What will they say? That's the good news. As they can say, I am an unworthy sinner, but Christ has paid my sin debt. And that is the only answer. Pleasing to God that will gain you entrance to heaven. And so I say to you today that I make no apologies We're spending time looking at what we have been addressing here in the last several weeks. In our study, which we have entitled The Fundamentals of Forgiveness, we're looking first at the essence of forgiveness. Why do we need to be forgiven? Of what do we need to be forgiven? And we saw that the source of the need for forgiveness is our sin. Jesus went around preaching and teaching, and the main theme of so much of what He taught and the main thing that we saw Him say often was, your sins are forgiven. Even to a crippled paralytic, He did not need health. He did not need wealth nearly as much as he needed forgiveness. And to that woman that came to him, that woman of the night, as we might say, what he says to her is, your sins are forgiven. The greatest need of mankind is not money. It's not even a good job. It's not even to live in peace. It's to be forgiven of your sins. That is the source of the need of forgiveness. Sins. And now recently we have been doing a brief study. Although you might not think it's brief. But it's still kind of brief study on what is sin. Or the definition of that sin that needs to be forgiven. So turn again in your Bibles if you would please to 1 John chapter 3, 1, 2, 3, 4, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. In the Pew Bible, 
It is on page 185 in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 3. This is the, a very simple and concise definition of sin. As the Apostle John, the Apostle that Jesus loved, writes in verse 4, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is the breaking of the law. And as we have seen in past weeks, it is the breaking of the law of God, known as commonly the moral law or the Ten Commandments. Simply put, sin is breaking the Ten Commandments. Now, it isn't only that, as we will see, but this is primarily what John is talking about. Sin is lawlessness, a breaking of the law. And we've seen that it is a breaking of the moral law. It is when you see the God of the Scriptures as holy and pure and righteous, the holy God who then gives to us His people. And as we saw from the Scriptures in Exodus 19, that the reason that He gave the law to His people was so that they would be holy. And that they would follow His commandments and be holy. And that the world would look on them and see a difference, a uniqueness from the rest of the pagan people in the lands and that they would know that their God is God as they live by his law, as they are holy and as he cares for and provides for them through all their trials and needs. We also saw the same thing as Jesus spoke in the gospel of Matthew. As he said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he says that you as Followers of Christ, as you keep the law, let your light shine before men that they would see your good works and what? Glorify your Father. It's Christianity 101. We are not to be law breakers. We are to be law keepers. Following God. Striving to be holy. Striving to live according to His Word. And yet people say, well, you know, I, I'm pretty good. I, I don't do a whole lot of sinning. And when you compare yourself to that great and holy God, and you look at His Word, and you see how you live your life, you know that if you say you are without sin, you are a liar, and the truth is not in you. As you see and you look at yourself, And you look at the commandments that say you are to love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your being. Do you do that? Every day? All the time? Non-stop? I don't think so. The vocabulary that is used today, the term Jesus is more of a curse word than a praise And then you get into such things as killing, which Jesus defined as hating your brother, stealing, 
which we can look at men and women who steal time from work, who cheat in various ways. We speak of coveting. The Scripture speaks about coveting, that we should not covet or lust. And yet we all do all the time. Kids talk back to parents. They do not honor their mother or their father. And when you look at yourself, you recognize and you realize, I am a sinner. I cannot deny it. And that if you were to commit just a couple of sins a day, how many sins does that add up to in a couple of years? I could not help but remember Dickens and that Christmas carol. It is a ponderous chain. Your sin creates a ponderous debt, a ponderous burden. Only it's no story. It's real. And so the greatest need that men have as lawbreakers, as guilty sinners, is to have their sins forgiven. Listen, people, your sin is real. And so is the need for forgiveness. And as we will see, so has forgiveness been accomplished by Christ on the cross. But today I want to move on. This is perhaps the most concise answer for the definition of what is sin. Sin is lawlessness, a breaking of the law. But there are a couple of other definitions that I want to take up with a little less uh, in-depth. Go back just a couple of pages, if you would, please, in your Bibles to the book of James and chapter 5. I know sometimes these are not necessarily the happiest things to deal with in church. Ladies and gentlemen, I am not Walt Disney. I am not here to make you happy. I am here to show you what God's Word says and the truth. And we're going to look at some things now that actually kind of affect our relationship to one another, even in the church. Because we have to deal with sin as individuals and as a body. And once again, I realize that this is not commonly talked about in so many churches today. But I make no apologies. Because my job is to bring you God's Word. And my job is to protect this flock and to see that this body is healthy before God. As we saw as we studied Laodicea, they thought they were fine, in need of nothing, but they were dead. I don't want that here. I want you to know what God's Word says. So we deal with the Scriptures and what God's Word says. Now, if you would, please just look down to verse 17, the last verse of James chapter 4. And he says here in this text, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is what? 
sin. The one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, that is sin. That's a little bit of a broader definition than sin is lawlessness. The one who knows the right thing to do but does not do it. Now I thought that I might bring in a little bit of a background here as to what James is saying by looking at a little bit of a background of this actual epistle, who's writing it, and to whom he is writing it. So if you would, please look back a couple of pages to chapter 1. James chapter 1, and I'm actually just going to begin by reading for you there in verse 1. James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad greetings. The first thing I want for us to mention is that he's addressing the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. But before we look at them, let's look at him, James, a bond servant of God. For this, I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Who is this James who is writing? Acts Chapter 12, if you would please look down to verse 17. Well, let's start at 16. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, report these things to James and to the brethren. And he left and went to another place. You see, he says to them, report these things to James. Who is James? This is the writer of the epistle, but who is it? Turn over a couple of pages now to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And I'm going to again pick up in verse 12. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now this is, if you look at the heading, some of your Bibles have headings. This is Paul and Barnabas addressing the council at Jerusalem. And so that's who they're addressing. And look who answers. Verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. I want you to understand that this James, who is writing this epistle, was an important guy in the book of Acts. He was the leader of the church there. He was the pastor of Grace Baptist Church, Jerusalem. Now, many people might suppose, if you think in your minds, and I know all of you kids have all of the apostles memorized. Peter, Andrew, James, John. Whoop, James. Peter, Andrew, James, John. John's brother was named James. He was one of the apostles. And you might think to yourself, well, that's who this is. You would be wrong. That is not who this is. Do you know who this is? When you read in the Gospel of Matthew... 
and they speak about Mary being there to see Jesus, do we not know his brothers, James? This is Jesus' half-brother, James, who, prior to the death, burial, and resurrection, did not even believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But when he saw his brother raised from the dead, obviously was convinced and became a devout follower of his brother, his half-brother, and leader of the church in Jerusalem. That's the James that wrote the epistle James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, who was the pastor of the church there in Jerusalem. Now, to who was he writing? Remember, it said to the twelve tribes who are dispersed. For this, let's look down to chapter 8 of, of uh, Acts, back a few pages again. Chapter 8. You remember what happens here. This is just following the death of Stephen, who was stoned because he said that he saw God, he saw Christ seated at the right hand of God. And they came, they rushed upon him and they stoned him. And Saul was one of the people who became Paul. Saul was one of the people who was in agreement. That's what verse 1 of chapter 8 says. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. That's why in a couple of chapters, they could come back and address the apostles who were still in Jerusalem. But here we see this teaching that there was a great persecution and disbursement of the people. Look over just a couple of pages to Acts chapter 11. Look down to verse 19. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, what did we just read? We just read about that in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 1, that there was a great persecution and a scattering of the church, which was, as you may know, predominantly made up of Jews at the beginning. Many Jews were converted. And so they're the ones who were scattered in connection with Stephen. They made their way to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. But these are those to whom James is referring. So now go back to James chapter 4. These are the ones that James is writing this epistle to. As we saw, I'm sorry, I said chapter 4. But this is what he says in verse 1 of chapter 1, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. That's who he's writing, and that's who's writing it. Now we come to chapter 4, and he says to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him that is sin. Let's look at the immediate context of that verse. 
We've seen the broader context of who is writing and to whom he is writing. But now let's focus in on these right here in this passage. And for that, look up to verse 1 of chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures." You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Well, who does the Spirit dwell in? God's people. Who is he writing to? God's people. The early church that was dispersed from Jerusalem. Now, this is a, this is a great book. The book of James. I spent a couple of years going through some of this one time in a study and perhaps we'll do it again. So I wish I could talk to you about all that's in this book, but right now let's see that he's really talking to the saints who have gone astray. The saints who were doing things that were not good or right. He's speaking to the church body that is obviously having some serious issues, obviously some tension, obviously some quarrels, so much so that he calls it a war. Have you ever been in a church that has a war? I pastored a church that had a war. In fact, two, I believe. And their war was always with me because I kept preaching the Word of God. And they didn't like it. But, you know, I've heard about, and I would even suggest that perhaps in one of these cases, there was a, a, a pretty good division in the church besides me. People seem to get factions. They seem to get problems. As they say, they get a, a bee in their bonnet or whatever. And they start disliking this person or disliking that person. And they build up this whole thing in their heads. And all of a sudden there's division in the church. Quarrels and wars. There is a church that I know of. And this is not a preacher's story. It comes secondhand from a dear friend of mine who is a pastor. He's a missionary now. He knew of a guy who pastored a church. One side of the church was carpeted in blue and the other side was carpeted in gold. And the pastor stood up to say something to the congregation. He said, you got two different color carpets. And somebody took him aside. Don't talk about the carpet. Because you see, 
there was such a war and a faction in the church as to what color the carpet should be. You don't ever have to worry about that. I will choose it. Don't worry about it. But can you imagine such silliness? Such ridiculousness? And this is what James is saying. You know better. How many times your mother used to say that? When you know what is right and do what is wrong, you know better. When you think of God and His mercy and His forgiveness upon your sin, how dare you look at your brother and quarrel with him? You really think his sin is worse than your sin? This is definitely rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You're all sinners, and you know better. You know you're standing before God. You know how much God has loved you and forgiven you your sin, and you're going to quarrel with somebody over some silly thing? You know what I also find or have found? Because we don't have factions in this church, and I'm thankful for that. But what I often found was half the time, they didn't even know why they were upset. Or they were wrong about what they were upset for. They didn't even get the facts right. You know better. And I say to you with all love and humility, there are many of you in this church who know an awful lot. You know better. You know the law of God. You know the ways of God. You don't need me up here every week telling you that coveting is a sin or killing is a sin or adultery is a sin. You know it. You know better. You know the right thing to do in the words of James. The one who knows the right thing to do is you. You know the right thing to do. You've heard it from God's Word. You know what is right in the eyes of God. And when you don't do that, you also know that it's wrong. And that is sin. You know the right thing to do. You know you do. And you also know when you don't do it. And that, according to the Scripture, is sin. When you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, that's sin. Look at yourself. Look at how you have been loved by God and forgiven by God. And it will matter little what Clifford does or what Tom does or what Peggy does or what Pat does. It will matter little because you look at yourself as a sinner saved by grace. And that's what matters. When you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's sin. So don't do it or do it.
do the right thing. Actually, I want to ask you to turn with me to look at this just a little further to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Luke, chapter 12. It's going to be uh, page 58 in the Pew Bible. Luke 12, that passage that we read a little while ago. Because I want you to see what Jesus says about you, or at least most of you here today. Now, we went through this passage, and I read through, and I can't take too much time to go through it again. So I want to look at what Peter asks our Lord in verse 41. He says, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And here's Jesus' answer. Lord said to him, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at a proper time? Blessed is that slave whom the master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Who is Jesus talking about? Who is a faithful, sensible steward or slave? You are, if you are a Christian. Are we not all slaves of Christ? Remember, you are slaves to one thing or another. You are either slaves to sin and your father the devil, or you are slaves to righteousness and Christ the Son of God. That's it. There's no other choice. You're either slaves to sin and the devil or slaves to righteousness in Christ. And so he's talking about us. And he answers the question and he says to Peter, this one, this one is the one who is blessed. Blessed is the slave who sees his master or whom his master finds so doing when he comes. And what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about verse 35. Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master. And when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you, they will be glad and they will serve him. Is that us? Are you ready? I say to you and I warn you, don't be ready for a rapture or think you're going to get by by being raptured. Be ready for the return of Christ, your master. That's what you're to be ready for. Now, look at what he says at the end of this passage. Verse 47. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act according with his will will receive many lashes. Now he'll go to heaven. He'll go to heaven. But he will receive less in terms of rewards. I can't go into everything that is being spoken of, but this is the imagery. 
the one who knows what to do and doesn't do it will be judged harsher. How do I know? Look at the next verse. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few. Because he didn't know. But you know. Look what he says. From everyone who has been given, much will be required. And to whom they entrust much of him will ask all the more. I'm telling you right now that some of you have been entrusted with much. I know some of you in this room who know more than the average pastor anywhere around. I know the books you read. I know the things you study. And I know in some cases what you have heard and in some cases for years. You know much. You have been given much. And to him who has been given much, much will be required. And when you sin against God, you will be judged more severely because you know much. Now I want to open up this principle just a little bit in terms of application and perhaps comparing it to your own life as I compare it to mine. The longer I live as a Christian, the more I read the Scriptures, the more I know about God, the more I know how wonderful and holy and pure He is. The more you read the Bible, the more you study, the more you know God. It never ends. You continue to grow. You continue to learn. You continue to see Him in His splendor, in His glory, in His purity, in His holiness. And the more I read the Scriptures and the more I know about God, the more I know how wonderful He is, how perfect He is, how holy He is, how pure He is, the more I know how sinful I am. Because I see Him in His beauty and I recognize in me my own shortcomings, my own sin. The things that were never sinned to me before I was saved became sin to me the day I was saved. There were lots of things that I did and never gave a thought to. Even though my conscience might have been crying out, I didn't care! But the day I got saved... I knew they were sin and filled garbage pails filled with sin. You repent and you turn from sin. But then, five years after I was saved, there were other things that I was still doing that I never gave a thought to. And the more I grew, the more I realize, well, this too is sin, and this too has to go. Maybe not 
as blatant and as visible as the day I was saved or the things I repented and turned from. But the more I grew, the more closer to God I got, the more I saw, well, I can't do this anymore either. I need to turn from this because it offends my God. And the more I went on, the more I studied, the more I became involved in preaching and teaching, the more I realized that things even a few years ago that didn't bother me, bother me now. Because I see God as holy and pure. And I see me as a worthless sinner unworthy of his affection and his love. And I turn from those. The more you grow, the more you are given, the more is required. The more you hear and know of God, the more you need to turn from sin The more you walk in the light of God, the more you see your sin in that light. Now, here's the other side of that story. Here's the other side of that same thought. That the more you see your sin, the more you see God's holiness and your sinfulness, the more wonderful your salvation becomes. The more wonderful is your Savior who gave His life to die for your sins. How much more your love for God increases as you see Him in His holiness, yourself and your sin, and yet He still loved me and gave His life for me. Oh, praise God for His grace that He loved me enough to save me. Can you understand why Newton said, Amazing grace! It's not just the title of a song. It's true. I'm such a sinner. So blind. Dead in my trespasses and sins. And yet, God loved me and sent His Son to die for my sins. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What love of God that He should forgive me of my many sins. And yet He did. What a wonderful Savior. And we sing, Hallelujah! What a Savior. Amen? Turn with me, if you would, please. Back to our passage in James, then. And look once again at verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's sin! 
Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. So you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. What is the problem in some churches today? Sin. You know better. You know better. Think of yourself before God. Not your neighbor. Not your fellow church member. Not your wife. Not your husband. Yourself. And there'll be a lot less quarrels in the church. But before I go today, I want you all to understand that James 4.17 is not only for the church. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 1 and saw the Apostle Paul say, You all know when you sin. You all know it. Because God put a conscience in you. You may not know all the things about the law of God, the ways of God, or the things of Christ, but you know when you sin. You know when you do the wrong thing. That's a simple thing. You know when you do the wrong thing. You girls, you know when you do the wrong thing. And when you do the wrong thing, it is sin. Whether you know the law of God, whether you know the scriptures, you know when you do wrong. Every one does. Why do you think that almost without exception, every civilization in the history of the world knows it's wrong to kill someone? Because the law of the Lord is on their hearts. They know it's wrong to cheat. They know it's wrong to lie. You know when you do wrong. And it is sin. And you have all sinned. And I just close today by saying, Jesus forgives sin. Jesus can forgive your sin. Jesus can forgive your sin. Come to Him. Wrestle with Him, cry out to Him for mercy and forgiveness. And He will not disappoint. Let's pray.